Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your observations, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else I posted on the YouTube community tab over 24 hours ago and got triple-digit comments once again. I've been gone for a little bit, and uh, it feels really good to be back. I genuinely miss this a lot when I take even a, a seven-day break, which is what I did, just seven days uh, but when I'm not out here doing this, uh, I do end up missing it quite a bit. So happy to be back. And uh, there are some really big mailbag topics to cover this week. Even though, you know, week after a major, 250s, maybe not any earth-shaking tennis results to talk about. Uh, there has been news. It was actually a pretty big week of news. So we'll talk about some of that stuff. But I also want to start by telling you about what I did yesterday. Yesterday, I decided, partially obviously for my own pleasure, but also partially for the sake of making content on this YouTube channel, I decided to go to my first ever professional golf event on the PGA Tour, Waste Management Open in the Phoenix area, Scottsdale, Arizona, which is just a two-hour drive from where I am right now in Tucson. All right? I was going to make a little uh, vlog, and uh, this particular tournament, the Waste Management Open, is known for being a golf tournament that pushes the envelope a little bit when it comes to etiquette. It is louder than most. It is more drunken than most. It is rowdier. So I thought, okay, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, check it out. How will I like the live golf experience? How will it compare to tennis? Well, it ended up being, there will not be a vlog. Let me say that right now. There will not be a vlog. It is not happening. Because we show up, we get our bearings, grab a little lunch, and it starts downpouring. And by the way, it's freezing cold and windy. So we have to take cover in the pro shop. I went with Jenna. Here, I'll pull up a picture right now. Went with Jenna. So we take cover in the pro shop. And like we're in there for two hours waiting for it to become bearable to go outside. Now, mind you, there are some covered areas at golf events with like some sort of overpass or something. Uh, or, you know, the almost like the grandstands with the coverings, the suites, so to speak. They're all VIP. If you are out there, at least at this tournament, with a general admissions ticket and it starts raining, you're basically screwed. There is nowhere to go. So it didn't really stop. And we went home. So I did not see a single ball struck at the Waste Management Open. I went to golf for the first time in my life and I did not see a single ball struck play was canceled uh for did they did they resume at the end of the day i don't even know i, I don't even want to know all right it was awful it was the worst weather i have experienced since moving to the west coast and in arizona this is the desert we're talking about there's a monsoon season where it rains a little bit every day in the arizona area uh, in the in the sonoran desert as you would call it close to uh, Sonora, Mexico. Uh, other than that, it rains like 10 days out of the year. Like 10, 10 extra days after monsoon season. 
This was one of those days. It was atrocious. It was terrible. Uh, the pro shop, by the way, like in terms of the apparel and all the uh, brand partnerships and the selection and just the size of the the shop at the Waste Management Open, more impressive than I've ever seen at a tennis tournament in my life. Didn't get anything, but still thought I'd throw that in. Despite that, my day at the Waste Management Open was a waste. So I wanted to start with that. Also, I, I went to New York, little vacation, saw a lot of my my good friends, my best friends who I grew up with in New York, and uh, that was awesome. As far as food, I'll keep this short. Uh, I was only in New York for three days, and my standards are pretty high. So there's only two spots where I would write home about. It's Ruby Rosa, great pizza in a package that, unlike a lot of the best pizza in New York, it's not like a little hole-in-the-wall slice shop, nothing against those places. Those places are the best, and they are essential to what is the New York pizza scene, but it's a spot where you can actually sit down in a nice dining room, have a glass of wine, and have a great dinner. Ruby Rosa, highly recommend. And if you're coming with a group, Wu's Wonton King is just built. Like if you're rolling eight, 15 people deep in your group, big round tables, lazy Susan in the middle, really good Chinese food, uh, really just designed to be family style, BYOB as well. Uh, so those are the two places that I uh, will be, those are the two meals that I'll be recommending or that I will be remembering, I should say, from my trip to New York. But it was absolutely great. And with that, Let's go into the mailbag. As I said, there's some big topics here, and I think that I think that I'm going to spend a long time on the first two questions. All right, first one, and there were multiple questions about this, uh, but we, I took this one from Malakat. Hey, Gil, uh, I'm glad to see you back. This is regarding the Holger Runa's departure from Luthi and now Becker. What are your thoughts on this matter? And do you believe that these coaching departures are due to Runa's expectations from coaches not being met, thus causing these situations? Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thanks. All right, let's get into the Holger Runa coaching situation. I want to start uh, by just talking about how I feel about team stability in very general terms. So I'm not talking about Holger Runa right now, but I... I look for stability in coaching. I look for young players and even older players to have long-lasting relationships. To me, it's a sign that they are bought in to what the people around them are, are advising them to do. And I just think it's healthy for a tennis player to have the same people around for very, very extended periods of time. And the way I've, I've reached that conclusion, as you guys know, is not from personal experience. I haven't been on the tour, so I, I can't say like, yeah, I thought it was really important for me. What I have been able to do is observe all of the players who have had success over the years and look for patterns, look for the way it usually is. And my general perspective on this is that team continuity is really darn important. Federer had it with Severn Luthi. Nadal has had it with Uncle Tony and now Carlos Moya. Djokovic had it with Marion Vida and now Goran Ivanisevic. Iga has had it. Sabalenka didn't fire her coach when she couldn't make a second serve. That paid off. Alcaraz has had it. Yannick Sinner has had it as well. He left his childhood coach, who he was with for you know more than five years, the, the man who kind of developed him at his academy in Ricardo Piatti. 
And then he made a change. And since he's made the change, he's had the same two people on his team for the two years since. And that, the Yannick Sinner comparison, is probably the most apples-to-apples apples example, although it's never perfect, when it comes to Holger Runa. And more on that in a moment. But let's talk about what's happened here. So Severin Luthi, uh, this news was broken by Annika Runa. Holger's mother. And uh, she said, quote, I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but the timing with Severin was clearly not right. It would be too few weeks for Severin to be able to cover for the continuity that Holger needs. Now, we ended up getting much more information from what Annika Runa said uh, on the Craig Shapiro podcast. She kind of expanded on it and gave a little bit more. And she said that uh, Luthi was basically trying to make changes and he was trying to make those changes before slash during the Australian Open. They were not happy, at least in hindsight, they were not happy with the timing of those changes considering it was a slam. And to compound the issue, and this gets back to what Annika was saying before, Severn wasn't going to rejoin the team after Melbourne until the end of March. So it was going to be another two months before Severn could come back into the fold and reinforce the changes that he was trying to instill upon Holger in January. So, okay, that's Severin. And then Boris said, what was it, a week later? Quote, due to professional and personal responsibilities, I'm unable to give Holger what he needs right now. All right. Uh, so just taking that at face value, and again, there are multiple layers to this that I'm going to go through, but just taking those two things at face value, the situation would appear to be quite abnormal. And the reason it's abnormal is because generally speaking, one of the first things that is ironed out and sorted out before a coach player partnership begins is all right, we're dealing with an 11-month season here. What is the time commitment? What is the traveling that you're going to be willing to do? I mean, maybe that's not the first thing. Maybe the first thing is, what's your vision for my game? Let's start there. And do we have chemistry in terms of personalities? And do we like each other? Uh, and, and all of that stuff. But before you sign on the dotted line and say, okay, let's do this, it is an absolutely essential part of the process is, okay, that that's cool that we agree on these things and that we want to work together, but how much are you willing to work? And is that enough for me? Does that work for me? Like this is a very, very basic part of the negotiation process. And for Severin and Boris to both leave in part on account of time responsibility or like time commitment, I want to say, that soon into the partnership, like these were very young partnerships and very early on, it's like, oh, wow, the, the time commitment, it's just not right. For that to happen so early on, that is not normal because usually that stuff is ironed out in a big way and it needs to be determined ahead of time. Now, Boris wasn't in Melbourne. He was commentating for Eurosport remotely. And uh, what I'm a little bit unclear about, what I haven't been able to confirm, 
is was Boris not in Melbourne because he had these responsibilities with Eurosport and Severn was going to be in Holger's box and it was the commentating that was keeping Boris out of Australia? Or is it a passport issue because Australia, as we've seen, is on the stricter side when it comes to allowing people uh, into their country and Boris has had some issues with uh, with passports in the past. And as a result, there have been some sanctions that have been levied upon Becker that might make travel complicated. I don't know what the reason is. I don't know which one it is, but he wasn't with Holger in, in Melbourne. Luthi was. Uh, Annika Runa did say that she didn't know that Severn Luthi would not be with Holger for another two months after uh, Melbourne. So that came as a surprise. So that's the situation. I emailed Anakaruna about this. I had a couple questions. I wanted to give her a chance to provide some thoughts. And here's what she said. She said, Holger had the same coach since he started playing tennis at age six. This is almost 15 years with the same coach. It's like a marriage. You don't go out and find the love of your life the day after the breakup. It takes time, and you need to kiss a lot of frogs before the princess is there. Maybe the chemistry is there, but there are other limitations. To know what is best for you, you also need to feel what's not. Holger is 20 and ranked seven in the world. He is not stressing, and the experience he's had makes him realize what's important for him, and this is the key to the future success. That's what Annika told me, and... Uh, a lot of that makes a lot of sense. First of all, I think that she and Holger, they're right to push back on the idea that, you know, this is Emma Raducanu 2.0 and that they just burn through coaches all the time. And yeah, if you take the sample of the last six months, yeah, it's true. Lars, Patrick Muradoglu, Luthi, Becker, boy, it's been quite the last six months, no doubt about it. But... It should be noted that before then, Lars Christensen and, and Holger was, were actually a model of stability and longevity when it comes to player-coach relationships. So Holger certainly has it in him to have that long-term relationship. That is true. I also appreciated what Annika said just at the end where she was like, look, Holger is 20 and he's seven in the world and there's a lot of time to figure this out because that is 100% true. There's one thing she said that I am inclined to question a little bit, which is you need to kiss a lot of frogs until the princess is there. That one I think you need to be a little bit careful with. It's just my opinion. Because the question I would ask in response to that is, can you know that quickly who's a princess? Is that even possible? Because I've always said coaches are like diets. It works 0% of the time. If you don't buy in zero percent, every diet in the world is completely ineffective. If you don't follow it, every coach in the world is completely ineffective. If you don't buy it. So I think there is something to be said for like Severn Luthi coming in. And one of the things that he was trying to adjust was he was trying to get Runa to be more calm on the court to tone down the energy a little bit which I think Boris was trying to do too. I don't know that, but I, I, you know, when he was mic'd up in Basel, 
50% of the advice that Boris was giving Holger courtside in Basel was just to breathe. So I think a lot of coaches come in from the outside. They see the way Runa operates on the court and they're just like, okay, we need to, we need to relax a little bit. And that's going to help think more clearly. That's probably going to help uh, endurance because you're going to use less energy throughout the course of three and a half hours of playing tennis. Because I've never really seen uh, a high-level pro play with as much energy as Holger. Now, maybe Holger will do it and he'll be the exception. That happens all the time. But that's just an example of, you know, it seems like they didn't like that. It seems like Annika at least didn't like that. And she kind of, again, this is all just listening to her on Craig Shapiro's podcast. It was almost like she said she's weary of the changes, but also she would have been kind of open to trying it. But then when the when Severin said, I'll see you at the end of March, that was where it was like, okay, no. That's kind of what it seems like happened. Um, but that's kind of my take on the whole situation. And if I were to kind of, if I were to kind of, I'm going to kind of tie this together with what my take is. Because I've, I've said a lot without really taking any, any hardline stances here. So here's my takeaway. And I know this isn't a sexy takeaway. I know this is that this isn't the kind of takeaway that's going to get me aggregated or create a buzz or anything, but here's my genuine takeaway. I think a lot of mistakes were made here that reek of inexperience. Like the fact that you have two coaches that just didn't seem that seemed to have issues with scheduling and time commitment and the ability to be with Holger as much as they wanted. Like the fact that that happens really early in a partnership, that reeks of inexperience in the process of of hiring on the part of both Holger and I, I suppose you could say Annika, who is Holger's you know manager along with being his mother. Uh, but guess what? They are inexperienced. They are inexperienced. So... I think they're going to learn from this, and I think everything is going to be fine, ultimately. As much as I love to see coaching stability, as much as sometimes it concerns me when players are not able to bring in outside counsel and have these long-term relationships, I think in this particular case, some lessons were learned here. And eventually, it's all going to work out for for Runa um, once he finds the next thing. I don't think these mistakes are going to be made again. Uh, Runa also released a statement. Uh, he also kind of said the same thing that Annika told me. He basically said, I've been working with the same coach for 15 years. It's not easy to find the, the perfect fit in the first try. I need people that knows me, who can be there all the time. That gives me comfort and happiness in a world with changing environments and conditions every week. So you could pretty much guarantee that next time they go into this process. And by the way, there is a coach on board here still that was on the team with Severin and Boris, and that coach is Kenneth Carlson. So I don't know if Kenneth is just going to be the guy for a little bit now, but regardless, I think that what they are probably going to take away from this situation is before they bring on a coach, they're going to make sure that the uh, commitment to traveling with Holger week in and week out is going to be there before they commit to anything. That's probably what they're going to take away from this. So those are my thoughts. Also, by the way, Mike James, uh, who is 
with the Murata Glue Academy, but he's worked very closely with uh, Holger Runa for a while now. He is his uh, performance analyst. He's been there a long time too. So there are some examples where there has been stability. It's just that head coaching role that hasn't had the stability for Holger. I'm going to move on. We will continue to track the Runa coaching situation. Next one is from Max Dang Vu. Hi, Gil. I guess I have two questions along the same line of thought. What's your thoughts on the Slam Kings tournament by Saudi Arabia featuring Djokovic, Nadal, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, and Runa? I see a lot of negativity in sports washing talk, which is the elephant in the room. For me, however, at the end of the day, the players are professionals who are paid for their work, so I can't in good faith criticize their decision to play and get paid, even if they are millionaires. How do we have a productive discussion about state involvement in sports, where instead of going down the sports washing route, we can go down the route of growing tennis in the Middle East and using tennis's influence to raise awareness about these issues or ask for better? All right. I have said, I said this in the draw last week, my, my new newsletter, which I should probably say right now, uh, has a new URL. Uh, it is no longer thedrawtennis.beehive.com. It is now just thedraw.tennis. So if you want to subscribe to my new newsletter, which curates the best tennis content on the internet every week, uh, visit thedraw.tennis. Anyway. I said on the draw last week, or we wrote on the draw last week, that this story is probably going to be by far the largest off-court story of 2024. I have no hesitation in that prediction. I fully believe it to be uh, that that it will be true. So we'll continue to see dominoes fall, and this was uh, certainly one of the firsts, which is basically. All of the highest ATP, highest profile ATP players out there have all agreed to play this exhibition that will be put on by the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia called uh, the Slam Kings Tournament. So uh, this is a complicated issue. If you're making it simple, you are, you're kidding yourself. So before I get into this, and also I appreciate the way you asked this question, in like a very, I guess, uh, even-handed manner, which I think is important here. Uh, but before I get into this, please, please, please know what abouts. Know what about this and what about that. Like, let's just talk about Saudi Arabia here, all right? Because I get it. Uh, there are a lot of questions about, like, the, the tour goes to a million different countries all the time, right, over the course of the year. And some of the countries have done things, particularly when it comes to foreign policy, that likely a lot of you guys have negative opinions of. A lot of you guys think are uh, are, are terrible or, or inhumane or, or whatever it be. We get that. Um, but to just take this issue, which is the domestic human rights record of Saudi Arabia, and then to just what about it, um, is at best a lazy response when it comes to dealing with this issue. So uh, let's start with kind of the state of Saudi Arabia, where we're at right now, because I think that's important just to establish the context. First of all, uh, there has been a lot of progress in the last in the last several years. There's been a lot of progress. 
Not long ago, women were not allowed to drive in the country. Uh, they were not allowed to leave the country without permission of a male family member. They were not allowed to participate in sports, whether that be playing or in some cases even spectating. That stuff has been phased out, which is good to see. But there are still some very uncomfortable truths. And as I go through these things, I, I guess I want to ask the question, if you were in the shoes, if like if you took everything you know out of it about what's gone down, not just in tennis, but in the sports world, when it comes to Saudi Arabia in the last uh, couple of years, if you took that all away and I came to you, let's say in, in 2018, and I said, hey, are you, do you think that the tour should do business and hold events in this country? Just ask yourself how you'd respond to that question, okay? Because it's still a country in which Saudi Arabia is a country that has no penal code. So the judicial system, it goes off of Sharia law, but there is really no, no written penal code that the judicial system in Saudi Arabia goes by. No written law, which is terrifying. That is a terrifying judicial system to uh, that that has been abused, that, and it, that has been abused, and it's been very, very often uh, recorded in terms of instances where the absolute power that it seems the government has over the judicial system causes a lot of really big problems. It is also a country that still criminalizes homosexuality. That much is well documented. And then in terms of gender equality, again, it has moved in the right direction. I would say right now, uh, it is still, it is still a country in which the power when it comes to marriage, divorce, custody of children is decidedly and wholly with men when it comes to marriage, divorce, and custody of children. So I think if you went to any major corporation, uh, including the, the ATP or, you know, any, any corporation, I don't know, I don't know how to characterize, uh, uh what uh, a corporation that doesn't align with those values, any corporation that doesn't align with those values, uh, which I, I don't think the WTA or the ATP would ever position themselves as saying that they do align with those things. Uh, and you'd say, would you want to do business there? You want to hold events in that country? I think they would say, well, no, the answer is no. But now we're asking it again. We're saying, would you want to do business there for life altering money when others have already taken the PR hit for you? When golf players have done it, when Cristiano Ronaldo has done it, when most of the best boxers in the world have done it, the UFC has done it, life-altering money, now do you want to do it? That's where the answer changes. That's where you go from, no, that sounds like a terrible idea, to, eh, yeah, I might do it. And that's what's happened here. And, uh, you know, it, it is an effort 
to rebrand the country. And sports is being used as kind of a, a tool to do that. Um, so I think the best way to do this when it comes to tennis in a way where you know you are promoting progress uh, in, in human rights um, is to come to the negotiation table with some standards. Now, by the way, I, I want to rephrase that because I don't think it's really anybody's job to promote progress in human rights in a foreign country. I don't really think, uh, I don't think that's a corporation's job. Uh, I do think it's a corporation's job to at least attempt to do business, two things, attempt to do business uh, with partners that share your values and also attempt to keep your employees and your business safe, right? Those are probably your two duties. Anyway, I think the best way to go about this is to come to the negotiation table with some standards. Saudi Arabia wants tennis. They want something. They're willing to pay for it. But I don't think the only bargaining chip should be money. There should also be some guarantees. There should also be some safeguards. That is the answer to this question. When you, when you say, what, what should the players do? What should the tours do? When they're faced with this decision of yes or no, do I want to go play tennis and go hold events in Saudi Arabia? The answer is not yes, and I don't think it's no um, realistically. Now, for some, it may be no. For some, it may be just yes right away. But I think the, the way where we're actually acknowledging how difficult this is, is you come to the negotiation table and you decide, well, what are your standards that need to be net, met in order for you to be comfortable doing this? And by the way, again, this isn't forcing a country to change. This is a private corporation deciding where to hold events. So if you want to think, if you think that this is a freedom thing, check yourself. If you think that this is like, if you're about to comment like, oh, the ATP and WTA shouldn't decide how a country operates, that's not what this is. If you think this is a freedom thing, check yourself because this is corporate freedom. This is, these are private these are private entities that get to decide where they hold their events. They are not forcing their values upon Saudi Arabia. No, 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 no. They are not doing that. They're simply saying, if we want to bring our act to your town, this is what we need in order to be comfortable doing that. That's all. This is business. This is not about freedom. Saudi Arabia has freedom to do whatever they want. They do. Um, now, Chris and Martina wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post um, when it comes to, well, what are those standards that I have that I have advocated for? Uh, well, they, they came up with some ideas. Uh, they said first, they had two requests. Their two requests were one, that the WTA hire a human rights expert to help educate the organization on the country. What are the risks? What are the rewards? Where are things at? Seems like a sensible idea. I don't want to spend too much time discussing that, but yeah, education uh, does go a long way because I think a lot of tennis players in particular uh, are probably not in a position really 
to feel very educated on what's going on there. And that's their favorite thing to say when they get asked a tough question about any worldly issues is like, well, I, I don't know. I'm just a tennis player. Yeah. So I think that, you know, education, that's a, that's fair. It's a good demand. Second one is more along the lines of what I'm talking about when it comes to coming to the negotiation table with something to ask for. And uh, Chris and Martina in their joint op-ed said, quote, the WTA should write a human rights framework and put it in place to protect players, fans, sponsors, workers, etc. Without this clearly stated framework that all tournaments hosts must abide by, the WTA puts its people at risk. So there you go. Just write a human rights framework to protect players, fans, sponsors, workers, etc. Isn't that really fair and reasonable? Isn't that fair and reasonable? I think so. So uh, I feel like this could go in terms of, first of all, I think it's inevitable that this is all going to happen, that the WTA is going to go into Saudi Arabia, that the ATP is going to go into Saudi Arabia, and, and we've seen the, the top players on the ATP already do it, or they will shortly. Uh, this could go decently well, or it could go badly. You know, that's the reality of it. Russia, doing business in Russia, that has turned out, especially for the tourists, that has turned out to, be, to become a problem, having to pull out of that after the Ukrainian invasion. China has been a problem. Uh, Peng Shui for tennis. Hong Kong for the NBA. That's been problematic. That's been a difficulty. Although I think overall it's been a net gain financially for both the NBA and for tennis. But it, it did put the WTA in a pretty vulnerable position when, when stuff went down. Um, but if there aren't any incidents and everyone stays safe, the country continues to progress on human rights. Young girls and boys in Saudi Arabia get to experience tennis and make it part of their life. This could also happen, and that would be really good. So uh, certainly I'm open to the idea that you know this, this could all work out decently well. Uh, man, it's tough. It's complicated. As far as the top players uh, going there, I, I'm curious to hear what they say um, about it. I, I hope that they... Are thoughtful. I hope that they acknowledge the complications uh, that that come with it. I hope they feel safe acknowledging the complications that come with it. I hope that they do not lie about what the reason is. Um, I think it's interesting that they all do it all at once. And again, I think when everybody does it at once, you dodge the PR bullet because there's nobody to really get mad at. So Nadal actually recently did the sponsorship and he was kind of out on an island for that and he got a lot of bad PR for that. But when Djokovic, Nadal, Alcaraz, Sinner, Medvedev, Runa, when they all go at the same time, it's almost like a suicide pact. You know? And it's like they're all holding hands and doing it together. So nobody really bears the brunt of the responsibility for making the decision. Um, at the end of the day, I've always felt very uncomfortable sitting here in this chair and saying with, with zero consequence, zero money to lose, nothing. I've always felt very funky about being like, yup, they should say no. They should absolutely say no until I'm confronted 
with a life-changing, you know, financial carrot and I say no because I feel icky about it because I don't think it's clean because I don't think I could look myself in the mirror. But until I turn down that carrot, then I just feel like I'm not one to talk. I'm not one to judge. Again, like I can sit here on this podcast and say whatever I want. There's no consequence to it. But for them, it's, you know, do you want one and a half million dollars, which is the appearance fee, six million dollars to win it? By the way, I thought it would be more money. <laughs> just saying, just saying. I thought each player would be doled out like at least three million just for showing up. That's what I thought, but only one and a half, huh? Uh, peanuts, pocket change. Again, what I what I will advocate for, what I will sit here and say like this should be done is you better have some standards. You, you better put in a framework that is going to prevent this, at least try to prevent this from blowing up in your face. And everybody needs to be safe here because there, there are some concerns when you go into a country with gay players and homosexuality is criminalized and there's no penal code. And the freedom of speech record when it comes to actually talking about these things is atrocious. There are some concerns there. And as an organization, you better make sure that you have accounted for those things. And I think at the moment, the best we can hope for is that the ATP and the WTA do that. Let's move on. All right, I, I told you that those two, those first two, were going to take app like forever. Uh, I knew they would. They're huge topics. Now we'll go in more rapid fire. Uh, question from Jason Evans. Great to see Bublik win the ATP 250 Championship in Montpellier whilst dropping the first set in every single match during this historic run. Were you able to catch any of it? If so, any thoughts? Also, while he is definitely one of the most entertaining players to watch, I always feel like his quirky style must be so incredibly frustrating for opponents. Thanks for all the awesome insight and hope you had a relaxing vacay. Well, uh, yeah, the unpredictability is something to deal with. I mean, on, on one of the biggest points of the match in the final, and I, I was in New York, it was Sunday morning, obviously. I didn't watch it, but I watched the highlights. Break point down in the third set trying to protect that break lead. Bublik did a forehand chip and charge and the ball wasn't even that low. It wasn't even like a, I have to slice this because I'm barely getting to the ball. It was literally just like, yep, forehand chip and charge. Let's do it. And uh, it worked. So do I think that that is infuriating for, for an opponent when they get forehand chip and charged on a massive point? Yes, I think that's infuriating. Uh, other than that, Obviously, the record is the big headline here. No player ever has come back from uh, a set down every single match and route to a title. It's kind of Bublik-like. It's kind of on brand for him to set a record the week after a slam at a 250 because it's super random. Same time, it's also not Bublik-like because he is somebody who can kind of sometimes... Uh, be a little bit quick to accept defeat and mail it in. But uh so in that in that respect, great to see Bublik do this uh five times in a row. Pretty awesome. It looked like from the highlights, it looked like he locked down from the back at times. It looked like he used his craft instead of his power when trying to create, which is always something that I 
I think is a good sign for Bublik when he tries to when he tries to raise his ground stroke speeds, when he tries to hit through the court with uh, with kind of more linear ground strokes. It usually doesn't work out, out too well for him. He has trouble keeping it clean when he tries to up speeds. So I love it when instead of trying to bludgeon the ball, when he is coming forward a lot, when he's hitting a lot of drop shots, when he's hitting you know short, awkward slices, I think that's the best version of Bublik, and it seems like he really uh, leaned into that, as well as being difficult to finish against, which is probably his most un- his most underrated quality is he can play not as good as Medvedev, but he can play a little bit of a Medvedev style sometimes where on return games, he's just going to make balls and kind of ask a lot of questions. And he's totally okay doing that. Whereas on service games, he's going to get three free points every time. And it's going to be a tough combination to deal with. So I, I did see Bublik D up quite a bit in the highlights that I watched. Um, then overall, big picture, his splits right now, best of five sets. His career win percentage is 44.7%. Best of three, it's 52.5%. So there's still that pretty big gap over this big a sample size in best of three versus best of five. And uh, as Bublik continues to have more and more success in best of three, which he has over the course of the last two years, that gulf has only grown. Four titles now for Bublik, three on indoor hard court, one on grass. That sounds about right. If it's best of three in those conditions and he's having a good week, he's got a great chance to win it all every single time. At a career high now of 23 in the world. So congrats to Sasha. Um, a lot of people like to ask me like about if I enjoy watching him play and all that. And the answer is usually yes. Like Sometimes there have been times where I've been watching Bublik and I've been like kind of disgusted by him because I just don't understand why he doesn't care more or why he's not putting in more effort. But when he's just having fun with it and the effort is there and those two things can happen at the same time, then yeah, I love watching Bublik play. I absolutely love him as a personality. I think he's totally hilarious. I think he's a, uh, a terrific interview. And I think the unpredictable style is a lot of fun to watch. Next one is from Ablaku. Can you explain how and why some courts are faster or slower than others? I'm fairly new to following tennis. I understand that different surfaces are different speeds, but why are hard courts different speeds than each other? Sure. So first of all, there are some atmospheric factors, which is not really what you're asking about, but I do want to mention it. Stuff like altitude, temperature, humidity, all of those things make a difference. But when it comes to the court itself, it's all about friction. That's the easiest way to explain it. So if you rub your finger against some hard courts, it's going to feel nice and smooth, right? It's a smooth surface. Um, those are going to be your very fast hard courts because when the ball makes contact with the court, um, there is a minimal amount of friction that occurs. Therefore, the ball doesn't slow down as much. There are going to be other hard courts where when you rub your fingers against it, it's going to feel like sandpaper. You're going to get that grittiness. 
That increases the amount of friction that occurs when the ball bounces. It slows down the ball. And there's your simple answer for why some hard courts are faster slash slower than others. Next one is from Johnny Dodge. Hi, Gil. Love your content. Another top 10 question for you. It's kind of similar from the, la from the last one. It builds on it. Uh, what type of hard court surface, bounciness, court speed, etc., do you think suits each of the current top 10? Maybe include Prime, Roger, and Rafa too as a bonus. Keep up the good work. I'm not going to give any explanations for these just because it's going to take way too long if I do that. All right, Djokovic. Fast, low-bouncing, indoor. Alcaraz, completely opposite. Slow, high-bouncing, outdoor. Medvedev. Medium, low-bouncing, outdoor. Sinner, fast, medium-bouncing, indoor. Rublev, I'll say medium, medium, indoor. Zverev, medium-speed, high-bouncing, indoors. Runa, Medium speed, high bouncing, indoors. Hercotch, fast, medium bouncing, indoors. Yep, yep, pretty. Eh, I mean, I. you know what? Let's go outdoors for Hercotch. Yeah, let's go outdoors. He's good in the heat. If it's really hot, Hercotch is good. Uh, Fritz, I'll say medium, high bouncing, outdoors. No brainer for Fritz outdoors. Tsitsipas, I'll say slow, medium bouncing, indoors. Slow indoor hardcourt is uh, really tough if you are playing Tsitsipas. All right, let's move on to Jack Young. What are your thoughts on Pagula parting ways with David Witt? What do you think are some potential candidates to seek Witt's services next? This was a surprise. It was a surprise to David Witt as well. He didn't see it coming. My sense is... And this is a guess. I don't have nearly as much information about this one as I did, say, for the, the Runa coaching situation. But Pagula did not look like herself at the Australian Open, mentally. Mentally, she seemed off. It's been a tough start to the year for her. Uh, now she's got a neck injury. So I think Jess is probably just looking at this as a really good time to just completely reset and I'm referring to Pagula's straight set loss against Clara Burrell at the Australian Open. It was 6-4, 6-2, and she just didn't seem engaged, which is not normal for her, especially, yeah, it's just not. So I think maybe she was feeling a bit burnt out. Then she picked up an injury, and she's like, look, this is a really good time for me to just completely reset and uh, come out with a fresh start on the back end of the injury, which I'm not sure... I don't think it's too severe or anything, so I, I think Bagula will be back pretty soon, but that's what I have to imagine it was because I know that these were two personalities that meshed really well. David Witt, unbelievably successful for uh, with Jessica Bagula. And now, in terms of potential candidates, it, I can't really answer that question because a lot of it has to do with, with openings. It's really hard. In this sport, it's really hard to predict where a coach is going to go and who they're going to coach. Uh, first of all, because there are way too many options, but second, because you just don't know who is actually going to end up looking for a new coach. So I have I have no idea on that, but David Witt's got a great track record. He's really only coached two players, Venus Williams and Jessica Pagula. And both of those relationships 
I think for, for Venus, it was probably around eight years. And for Pagula, it was probably around four years. So he's had really, really good staying power. Next one from Choide. After that dominant run at the Australian Open, do you foresee a year dominated by Sinner, or do you think he might take his foot off the pedal now that he has the major monkey off of his back, so to speak? I guess neither. And I talked about this on, on the last mailbag, which was the post-Australian Open mega mailbag. But look, dominated is a really strong word. Do I envision a year dominated by anybody? No, not really. Uh, I think everybody is is too good at the top right now, and they're going to take each other's lunch money from time to time and from week to week. So I don't see him continuing to dominate. I think, again, the challenge is now, as it is for anybody who wins their first major, is going to be how do you mentally rebound? How do you reset mentally? Because it's a, it's a massive, massive adjustment. So uh, that is the task in front of Yannick Sinner. And if he handles it great, he's going to be he's going to continue to be one of the contenders at every single tournament. And uh, if he doesn't handle it great, then he'll take a little bit of a step back from what we've seen over the course of the last four months or so. Almost no matter what, he'll take a little step back from what we've seen over the last four months or so because it is... Uh, it is truly it is truly a run at a level that I don't know that any player has ever been able to maintain forever. I'm fairly confident in saying that, especially if you look at his win rate against top five players. Seriously, that you can't sustain that. It doesn't matter who you are. From Matthew. Hey, Gil, roughly what percentage of tennis players on the tour actually max out their potential? For example, a player with the top 10 potential reaching the top 10. What are the main reasons you think some never reach their full potential as a player? Stubbornness, lack of coaching, lacking maturity. Thanks for all the great analysis you provide. This, uh, this doesn't seem like a really, really complex question, but I think the more you think about it, the more you realize that it is a really, 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 really com complex question. Because it has to do with what we look at as areas of potential improvement, what we evaluate as areas where you can get better, and what we evaluate as areas where the player has maxed out. And even some sometimes that can be a weakness. Like sometimes a player can have a weak backhand, but it's like, okay, you don't have the potential to improve that. Versus other things where we say, Oh, you do have the, the potential to improve that. And I would say, generally speaking, at least from my perspective, uh, it's the technical stuff that I usually give players somewhat of a pass on. And I say, okay, well, th those are things where maybe it's going to be difficult for you to, to kind of turn your weaknesses into strengths versus the mental side of things, stuff like shot selection, stuff like controlling emotions on the court. That's where a lot of the time I find myself saying, whoa, you can get better. Like you have the tools physically and technically to get better and it's not happening because of your head. And we can have a philosophical conversation about, is that the right way to look at it? How much of even your abilities as a player mentally, how much of that is God-given talent. How much of that are you born with versus how much of it can you uh, improve over the course of your career? So all of these things are 
super complex. You can twist yourself in knots talking about this. But I think the one the one area where I think everybody can agree is under a player's control is professionalism. And that's where I'll take this question. What percentage of players actually max out their professionalism? And as a result, we'll say any player who does that maxes out their potential. Hard for me to say. Hard for me to even answer that. But I think that number is going up. When I say professionalism, it means you are uh, you're putting in the work off the court and you're doing all of the things that everybody knows you need to do to maximize uh, when it comes to diet, when it comes to sleep, when it comes to rest, recovery, uh, getting your body ready before it's time to perform, uh, putting in the work in your mental preparation as well, being mature on and off the court, uh, putting the right people around you, like all of that stuff that falls into the professionalism bucket. Are you being a professional to the best of your ability? And I want to say that's about 75% of the tour is probably being as professional as they can be. But I might be way off on that number. I'll say it right now. I might be way off. I am not behind the scenes. I am not. Uh, this is a good question. Maybe to, I'll, I'll keep this in mind and maybe ask, ask some people. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not in these hotels. I'm not... Um, I'm not in these gyms. Like I, I'm not really seeing as much as I would need to see to say what percentage of tennis players are being fully professional. I don't know. I know I know plenty aren't. I know not everybody is. I also know from everything I've heard from former players, especially uh, players who played a good while back and now coach, that the level of professionalism as a whole has just skyrocketed in recent years. And I think that is due to the money getting better, I think it is due to the knowledge getting better. And maybe it has to do with accountability. You know, just in the, the age of the internet where everything you kind of do is, in the public at least, is going to be put under a microscope. This one is from Joanne. Hi, Gil. Hope you enjoyed a well-earned break. Purely a fun question. Have you seen the tour a reality show, The Biggest Secret in Tennis ATP Tour Trailer? If so, who is your favorite actor? I think I laughed the hardest at Monfils. Not coordinated in real life, but the whole thing is gold. Yes, it was. Yes, it was gold. And I got so many comments about this, uh, which I, I guess I'll, I'll throw it in the draw, but I feel like everybody who is subscribed to the draw will have already seen this video uh, because it was five minutes of pure sketch comedy uh, with a lot of our our favorite players. So, uh, amazing job. Amazing job by the ATP. Uh, this stuff is so fun. This is how to engage, like, younger fans. It was a social media hit, and uh, I, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. Uh, Murray has the coldest deadpan in the world. He was so incredibly believable because he's so good at looking dead serious. Like nobody looks dead serious better than Andy. And then I, I love what Djokovic, this is going to sound funny. I love what Djokovic did with his character because uh, he clearly was going for like that pretentious actor type, you know, where he was like, I want to bring truth to Novak. And some of my favorite actors are the pretentious actor type, but 
Uh, he nailed it. You know, he said a lot of words. They really don't mean anything, but actors love to say them. And uh, I, I thought it was really funny that he went in that uh, direction. Uh, team grunting in the voiceover booth was a nice touch. So I don't have much to say about this, but it was really, really funny. And uh, it's the kind of thing that the WTA does not do. They do not do this. They have no team in place, no spot in the budget for, for stuff like this. And uh, it's uh, it's good to see the ATP at least leading the way in this department. Um, and it's it's nice to see that that they have smart, creative people working on stuff to, to promote the game in, in creative ways. And uh, I'd love to see them do something like this every year as a trailer for the season. The one thing is like, it's the timing felt a little random. Uh, this isn't a complaint. It's just an observation. Uh, it felt very random. And the weird thing is like, it, it didn't seem like they were promoting anything in particular, right? It was just like, here's a video we made. And as great as the video was, usually when usually when you have something like this, at the end, it's like, well, this is what the purpose of this was to promote this. And the ATP just kind of didn't do that. They were just like, yep, we made this. So uh, awesome stuff, even if I have no idea what the larger purpose was. Next one from Asbestos. Hi, Gil. Do you agree with Andy Roddick's statements in his podcast about Alcaraz's serve seemingly being worse now than two years ago, or at least not having improved? Is the serve the element of his game that Alcaraz needs to work on, work the most on? Thanks for answer. Thanks for the answers and your content. Uh, technically speaking, yeah, the serve is. I don't think it's gotten worse, and I'm not sure Andy said it got worse. I I didn't watch that segment slash listen to that segment. But uh, I'm not sure Andy said that. Has it? I mean, I think it has improved, but it started out. It started out at a pretty low level. Has it gotten to a place where it's on par with the rest of the top ten? No. But it has improved, in my opinion. Paces up, hits the flat serve much, much more often than he used to. But there's still a lot of work to be done, particularly in terms of uh, hitting spots and uh, maybe working on the, the slice serve a little bit more. Then the next one is from member Ellis. Hi, enjoy your show. I'm a huge Alcaraz fan. At his height, can he develop a strong enough serve uh, to garner major free points? If not, will he continue? Will he be at a continuing disadvantage to Sinner? I don't think his height is going to be a, a non-starter when it comes to Alcaraz's serve getting better. I, I really, I would strongly disagree with that. And I've seen that a lot online. The speed is there. The speed is very much there. And uh, sure, being a little bit taller and achieving a higher contact point does help when it comes to finding angles on your wide serves. Other than that, a lot of it does come down to speed, and Alcaraz can hit 135. He can hit, you know, be above 120, 125 at a pretty regular basis. So the tools are there, the physical tools are there for him to have a serve that does a lot for him. I just think there needs to be 
fine tuning in terms of his ability again to hit his spots and to uh, mix it up to execute certain serves that aren't as comfortable for him at the moment. But no, he can he can do it at his height. He's got enough speed. All right, let's rapid fire through a couple of more. Uh, here's Ray Bura. Hello, Gil. Like your contents. Want to ask you about Francisco Sarundolo. He seems not to start his season in a good way. If you have watched his matches, would you mind sharing about his form? Mentally, he he does not seem like he's in a good place. That's that's what I'm observing. I mean, the year started off really poorly for Francisco. A couple of brutal one-sided losses in matches where he was the favorite. That was right away to start the year. And I don't know that he has recovered mentally from that because it does not look like he's enjoying himself on the court. And thus, I don't think the effort level or the focus level or the emotional disposition has been in a place where he's giving himself a chance to play his best tennis. This one's for Max. Hi, Gil. Love your work. I watched the Andy Roddick podcast slash YouTube based on your comments and saw that many wrote that they were there because of you. I thought Andy is doing a great job. Did he contact you to thank you for sending so many people to his pod? Have you heard it? What are your overall thoughts on it? Uh, yeah. Okay, let's see. Uh, no, he has not contacted me. And uh, I, I said last week that I was going to shoot him an email. I just realized I do not have his email. I, I think I have basically everybody at Tennis Channel. I basically have all of their emails. Andy, I do not have. So I have not been able to reach out to him. He has not reached out to me. Uh, again, I would love to have him on. Obviously, I'd love to be on. But... Right now, yeah, I haven't really like went and asked other people if they could give me his email, but I do not have it. So uh, if anybody is watching from Andy's team, like I know he has a producer and a social media manager, uh, I would uh, obviously invitation is is wide open. Good to see that people were, were uh, commenting. And uh, yeah, like... You guys know I have John Wertheim on once a year, always. It's been three years now I've done that. So I'm a big fan of John, and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Andy. And yeah, I think I think it's great. Um, Andy Roddick is so witty. His sense of humor is, is just tremendous. And that's a big asset. Um, and as I said last week, he has everything he needs to succeed. It does kind of make me laugh because like, he has all of these things right away that I'm just starting to, in, in some cases, get after doing this for five years. Um, but that's that's how it is, and I don't resent it at all. I'm just really excited to see uh, what what Roddick, you know, how far Roddick ends up being able to take this. And uh, again, I think it's going to have a good effect on the content community when it comes to tennis. Let's end on this. It's from another member, Ket. Hey, Gil, not sure if others have asked this question before. I've uh, watched your videos for a while, but this is the first time trying to ask a mailbag question. Even though watching your channel helped me a lot, I want to ask that how could you how could you suggest to people who do not have any tennis background slash don't play tennis themselves to develop their sight of tennis when watching matches on their own? Like, what points need to be focused on or knowing some information before the match that can really help understand 
uh, the, the whole thing. Um, and then also happy birthday wishes. Thank you for that. Uh, my birthday was a couple days ago. So yeah, you're asking like, how do you develop a good eye for the game? Like how do you develop an ability to read the game? Well, it's hard for me to coach that, to be honest, I would say, uh, the first thing is like your, your level of focus is your best friend. So being focused is kind of the first bar that you need to clear. And that's not for everybody, which is fine. Not everybody is going to watch matches all the time with a lot of focus, but if you're not focused, you're, you're, you have little chance of really picking up on a lot. Uh, and then after that, I would say like, you should be coming in or it's a huge help. I'll say to come in with a few preconceived notions of what you should be looking for. So I always felt that a lot of the matches that I do the best job of analyzing are the matches that I do some sort of preview for, whether uh, that preview goes public and I post it on YouTube, or just if in my head I write a couple of keys to the match down and that's me anticipating, okay, here's what I think is going to be important. And then when you, when you look at how things play out through those lens or through that lens, that gives you a major head start on figuring out uh, what's happening in the match. That it could be that you are right and something you expected to happen ends up happening, or it could be that you're wrong, which is oftentimes going to be the case, and that's going to be even more valuable. Uh, but just to have something in your head as you watch is going to really help you. Uh, and one example of that might be like uh, if you're if it's a player who relies a ton on the serve plus one forehand, uh, keying in on something like how many times. Are they getting to hit their forehand on the first shot versus are they hitting, are they starting the point with a lot of first ball backhands? Uh, and then you have to go deeper into the why, right? Like, okay, Felix is getting a lot of first ball backhands. Well, is that because he's having to hit a ton of second serves? Or is that because uh, he keeps going T and wide and giving the right hander yeah, anyway, I'm not going to keep going going into it, but you kind of get the the picture. So I think starting with something is is a major help. All right? So, uh regular Monday match analysis this week and um a special mailbag plan, but I'm not going to uh divulge too many details. That's all going on next week. Hope you enjoy. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.